You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and we'll just read the the first four verses this morning. If you would, stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is an end of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And as we uh, approach this this text once again and and recognize just, just how important these things are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to work through it, that your spirit would would guide us and just shed a a light on the the scriptures to make it, it clear in our minds. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in such a way that would produce in us a, a zeal for godliness that's based on the righteousness of God, that trusts in Christ Jesus alone and not ourselves, we would not fall into the same trap that those before us did. Lord, we pray that you would work amazing things this morning. Your Scripture would be preached in a way in which Jesus would be. We would see Him for the the great Savior that He is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, when we got to these verses, we said that we must approach them with a, a certain amount of precision. So it is fitting that we spend another week here, this time specifically in verse 4. Verse 4 is is really a very simple verse, only uh, nine words in the Greek. But there are a couple words there that cause us some problems and make it a little more difficult for us to to interpret. And those are the words uh, end and law. Yeah, by the way, the, the notes are wrong. <laughs> so don't you don't need to put any, any notes up today. I, I put the wrong things in. Those will be last week's notes. <laughs> the same thing. Um, but the words end in law make it difficult for some to, to interpret. And, and we really need to, to focus our attention on 
those words if we're going to understand uh, this text. But before we get there, let's just back up for a second. I said last week we needed precision here because the, the text speaks both of our righteousness and God's righteousness. And the problem is that when we confuse those two things, we confuse the gospel itself. And really what we're doing then is, is muddling law and gospel, and we don't want to do that. We've talked about this before. In fact, uh, the last Sunday in January, we talked about Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting text. And we noted uh, the imperatives there, the, the what we are to do's in that text are based on the indicatives. Indicatives are declarations of who you are because of what Christ has done. If I said, you are a child of God, that would be an indicative. If I said, Go and let your light shine, that would be imperative. And in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, we see both of those things, imperatives and indicatives. But you are the light of the world isn't imperative, but we also often read it like it is. We read it to say, you are to go and be the light of the world. When in fact, Jesus is saying, you already are that, based on what he has done for you based on the truth of the indicative, then go let your light shine from the highest hills so that people will see it and glorify your Father in heaven. So the imperatives are based on the indicatives, and I won't retrace that entire message. You can always go back and check it out. But my point here is that if we confuse imperatives and indicatives, if we confuse the what to do with the declarations of who you are, then we run into some real problems. The point in the message last week was that in muddling our, the righteousness of God with our own righteousness, we then become satisfied with our own righteousness. And when we become satisfied with our own righteousness, we pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there needs to be a stark distinction made between our righteousness on one side and God's righteousness on the other. In other words, there needs to be a distinction between law and gospel. And we need to understand what we mean by law, what we mean by gospel, and how we are to separate those two things. So let's just take a few moments here and differentiate between law and gospel. I think the the word here in in the text in verse 4, for Christ is an end of the law. We need to make it clear what we're talking about. And to do that, we need to to look at it in light of what the gospel is. So we're going to take a few minutes here and just we're going to go back and focus our attention on on what somebody else has said. I want to bring another author in, and that's Thomas Boston, because Thomas Boston shows both the, the seriousness of the issue here, and he also makes the distinction very clear between law and gospel. Now, Thomas Boston isn't the only one to make this distinction. There are a host of others, but I found him very helpful. I want to draw on him in our time together because I think you will find him very helpful too. Thomas Boston was born in 1676. He died in 1732. He was a Scottish church leader. He was a pastor. He was a theologian. And he really helps us define what we mean by law and gospel. And he makes the case that 
that these two things ought to be separate and distinguished from one another. In fact, he says uh, that there are several reasons why we must be instructed in the law and instructed in the gospel. And the first reason that he lists is if we are ignorant of law and gospel, then we end up mingling the two. And we don't want to do that. He says, quote, we, we confound one with the other. And as he's saying that, then he goes back to Martin Luther and he quotes Luther on this. And Luther says in his commentary on Galatians, he says when we confuse the two, law and gospel, he says it does more mischief than any man's reason can conceive. Boston goes on to suggest that the law and gospel ought to be separated as far asunder as heaven and earth are separated. He then says that one learns to rightly distinguish, when one starts to learn to distinguish rightly between law and gospel, we start making great strides in the true understanding of Scripture. He says it actually help us, helps us to reconcile one place of Scripture with another place of Scripture in the Old and New Testaments. It's actually, actually something that helps answer uh, Lud's question if you were here on Wednesday night. If you were part of that discussion. However, I don't think Lud is here today. Um, but not only does he say this, but Thomas Boston goes on to say it, it helps us, it helps to, to quiet our conscience. When we start understanding the distinction between law and gospel, when it comes to, to times of, of trouble, times of distress, it goes a long way in our, in our lives to, to help us, and it distinguishes between true and, and false doctrines. Now, we haven't even begun to define what we mean by them or what Thomas Boston means by those terms, law and gospel, but from what he says here, that it, that it helps us understand Scripture correctly, but it helps us in our, in our personal lives as we're going through distress. I mean, we understand that it's pretty important. When we start muddling the two, it, it causes more mischief, says Martin Luther, than, than any man's conscience can comprehend. He goes on and he says, quote, The law is a doctrine partly known by nature, teaching us that there is a God and what God is and what he requires us to do binding all reasonable creatures to perfect obedience, both internal and external, promising favor to God and everlasting life to all of those who yield perfect obedience thereunto and denouncing the curse of God and everlasting damnation to those who are not perfectly correspondent thereto. End quote. So basically, what he's saying is the law of God is what requires... The law of God is what he requires and he promises blessing and everlasting life to all of those who are perfectly obedient to the law. And if one were to fall short of God's requirement, there is everlasting damnation on the other side. Boston goes on to contrast this with the gospel. He says, the gospel is a doctrine revealed from heaven by the Son of God presently after the fall of mankind into sin and death and afterwards manifested more clearly and fully to the patriarchs, the prophets, the evangelists, the apostles, and by the spread abroad to others 
wherein freedom from sin, the curse of the law, the wrath of God, death, hell, is freely promised for Christ's sake to all who truly believe on his name. So, the law is, this is God's perfect requirement. If you keep it perfectly, then eternal life will follow. If you fall short, then damnation. The gospel is that there is freedom from sin and the penalty that the law imposes in Christ Jesus for those who believe. Boston, again, says, and I quote, The nature and office of the law is to show unto us our sin, our condemnation, our death, But the nature and office of the gospel is to show unto us that Christ has taken away our sin and that he also is our redemption and our life. So the law is the word of wrath, but the gospel is the word of peace. Now, something that might be confusing at this point could be asked in a question, and that is, where is the law and the gospel then found? I mean, I think, I think sometimes we often think that in the Old Testament we have law, in the New Testament we have gospel. Now, Boston says this, he's, and he's right when he says, this law and this gospel are written and recording in the, recorded in the writings of the prophets, evangelists, the apostles, namely in the books of both the Old and New Testaments. He goes on to explain that the law and the gospel are the chief central heads which, which comprehend all the doctrine of the scriptures but we're not to think that they are to be distinguished from one another so we can't get law in one book and in gospel in another book. They're not distinguished by the books or the testaments, but it's the diversity of the Spirit in speaking them. In other words, in the same book with the same author, we find both law and gospel. And, and even here with Thomas Boston's help, and we've taken steps to differentiate the two, we still ask the question, how do we discern then between law and gospel? For instance, in the same Old Testament or New Testament book, how do we know the difference? This is where Boston moves next. He says, and I quote, we are to take heed when we read the scriptures. We do not take the gospel for the law, nor the law for the gospel, but labor to discern and to distinguish the voice from one, from the voice of the other. And if we would know when the law speaks and when the gospel speaks, let us consider to take note that when in Scripture there is any moral work commanded to be done, either for ensuing of punishment, steering clear of punishment, or upon promise of any reward which is temporal or eternal, or else when any promise is made with the condition of any work to be done which is commanded in the law, that is to be understood as law. Contrawise, which apparently is a word, contrary to that, where the promise of life and salvation is offered unto us freely without any condition of any law, either natural, ceremonial, or moral, or work done by us, all those places, whether we read them in the Old Testament or the New Testament, are to be referred to as the voice of the doctrine of the gospel. Yea, and all those promises of Christ coming in flesh, which we read in the Old Testament, yea, all those promises in the New Testament, which offer Christ upon condition of our believing in his name, are properly called the voice of the gospel. 
somewhat of a, a lengthy quote, but I think it was worth it. So how do we differentiate between law and gospel? The answer is, if, if there is a, a moral work to be done for the purpose of avoiding punishment or gaining reward, and if there's a text of Scripture that talks about uh, a moral work to be done for the purpose of avoiding punish, punishment or gaining reward, if there's a promise made with a condition of work that is to be done, then this is law. The gospel, on the other hand, is the free offer of salvation without condition of any law to be done by us. And the gospel comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And those are, those are the two distinctions. I would guess that some of us probably already see what this has to do with our text and what Paul is getting at then when he says that Christ is an end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But at this point, let's just keep going just a few more minutes and see if we can make this divide in our minds even a bit larger. For instance, the law says that if you are a, that you are a sinner, and since you are a sinner, you are therefore damned. The gospel says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, so believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The law goes on and says, you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You are unrighteous. You are a sinner. You are a lawbreaker. You are not righteous. Therefore, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. To that, the gospel says that God has made Christ to be sin for you. That he knew no sin might be made the righteousness of God. Not in and of yourself, but is his righteousness granted to you. The law will say that we owe a debt that cannot be paid. We say things like, my sins are so great that not even God can forgive them. You committed crimes against God for which you need to pay, the law says. The gospel says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for you. He paid that penalty. He is our redemption. Our freedom then is found in him alone. The law points to the fact that you have not continued in all that God has required of you. You continually fall short. And since you have continually fall short, you are to be damned. The gospel says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and that he was made to be a curse for us. The law says that you are guilty before God and the guilty cannot escape God's judgment and wrath. The gospel says that the Father granted to the Son to be the judge in other words, the Father cannot be set up against the Son. God knows what He is doing. Jesus will look on those who He has redeemed. And they will not be judged on the basis of their own righteousness, but on the righteousness of the Son applied to them. So let me just give you a couple different examples here of, of law and gospel in the New Testament. In, in in Wednesday night, we were talking about Ephesians 4. So let's just go to Ephesians 5 for a moment. Ephesians 5, if you would just turn there and look at this, I think it would be helpful. Can't spend a, a lot of time here, but I just want you to see the, the distinction that we've made. 
Ephesians 5. Just going to start reading in the first verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifices to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. First four verses, I believe. Now, if I asked you if this were law or gospel, what would you say? Be imitators of God. That's law, isn't it? Walk in love. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you. That is law. No filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking. Law. These are all statements that point to the perfect and right standard of God, aren't they? Now just think of the first for a moment. Be imitators of God. Can you do that? I mean, remember Matthew 5.48. Jesus said that we are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Can you imitate that? That's the command. Be imitators of God. I mean, you could try. You could do really well, probably, compared to other people. But in the scheme of things, our imitation of, of God's righteousness isn't even in the same ballpark, is it? I mean, our best efforts at imitating God look nothing like God. It looks more like we're trying to imitate somebody else who's morally better than we are. That's why it's law. It's law because our imitation of God, our ability to walk in love, our ability to flee sexual impurity or covetousness or filthy talk or crude joking, no matter how good we are compared to our neighbor or the person in the next pew, our ability in those areas will not please God because the only thing that pleases God is perfection in those areas. Right? Not pretty good. Not, see, I'm improving in this. See, I'm continuing to get better. Doesn't work. So there is law in these verses. But the question is, is, is there gospel? First, notice the therefore in verse 1. You see, therefore, you see what it's there for. So we need to go back to the last verses of chapter 4. We can go back to verse 32. That would be enough. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. That's law. Forgive one another. That's law. But notice how we are to forgive. Just as God has forgiven you. That's gospel. The fact is, you could never stand before God if your standing before God was based on our ability to forgive one another. 
you might be a very forgiving person, but you and I can never forgive as God has forgiven us. God in Christ didn't forgive us based on our ability to forgive or our ability to keep the law and do all of these things. Our ability to be imitators of God, walk in love, that the list goes on and on. He forgave us in Christ Jesus based on our faith in Christ Jesus. Our sin was transferred to him, his righteousness given to us. That's gospel. Why are we then to be imitators of God? Why is it in there? Not to earn favor with God. We are already forgiven. The text makes that clear. You forgive others as you have already been forgiven. Therefore, be imitators of God. We long to imitate him. We long to walk in love. We long to forgive. Why? Because of what he has done for us. The imperatives in Scripture always go back to the indicatives. In other words, God's command to us is based on who we are in the gospel. Not who we are is not then based on what we do. You don't get it backwards. The declaration of the gospel of who we are is because of what Christ has done. There's more gospel here. In verse 2 in chapter 5, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ did this freely. This is who we are. We are so loved by God that he died for us. He was a sacrifice on our part. We should have died. We should have bore that wrath. He did it for us. Therefore, we long to be like him, to imitate him, to walk in love. He died, the righteous for the unrighteous. Again, that he would do that for a people that do not deserve it, that would die for them. This produces a desire for us to now live, to now walk in faith and dependence and obedience to the one who freely died for our sins. Now, just in case we didn't get this, or we were unsure that we've made the division quite right there, go down to verse 5. We stopped in verse 4. Verse 5 reads this. For you may be sure of this. Okay, so just in case we weren't sure, now he's saying you be sure of this. That everyone, it's hard to do anything else with the word every, everyone is everyone. All of you are, are in there who is sexually immoral, who are impure, or is covetousness, covetous, that is an idolater. So everyone has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. If it wasn't clear before, it is now. How many of us would be in the kingdom? How many of us would inherit the kingdom based on this? 
None of us, right? But compare this to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we read, and this is right around verse 14, if you're going to look at it, that those who have the Spirit are led by the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, then you are sons. And if you remember way back in Romans 8, that discussion, Paul uses the term son there for a reason. And that is because of what comes next. And that is the whole subject of inheritance. If you have the Spirit of God, if you have the Spirit of God, you are a son of God. And if you are a child of God, then you are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. To everything promised. I just bring this up because in Romans 8, our inheritance of the kingdom is based not on law, but on gospel, isn't it? But according to Ephesians 5, 5, if it were based on law, you see in this? If it were, if our inheritance was based on law, Paul says it in here as clear as a bell. Nobody would inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the difference between law and gospel. No one would inherit the kingdom. Do you just think that to see the distinction of, of law and, and gospel and, and how it helps us to make sense of scripture, how useful the law is? That is, it isn't a burden. It isn't a, an extra weight on us, but it points to how Christ fulfilled it perfectly for us and how we are free then to be obedient and obey the law, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. So, we've pointed to why verse 4 is so difficult in chapter in Romans 10, 4, is so difficult at the start. We said because of the words law and the word end. I think in explaining the law here, we've also talked about how Christ was an end to the law, but at the same time, we need to, to ask what is meant here by the word end. What does Paul mean? For Christ is an end of the law. On, on one hand, we, we see the law is all the way through Scripture. The fact is that word can be used a number of ways. Charles Hodge gives three possible interpretations. He says, first, the word end here could be the object to which a thing leads. So Christ is the end to which the law leads. So if the law is properly used, the law is going to lead us to Christ. So he would be the end of the law. Second, Hodge says that the word end can mean, the, can mean completion or fulfillment of something. So Christ is the, the fulfillment of the law in that he perfectly fulfills all of the law's requirements. Or third, it could mean the end or termination of something. So that Christ would be in his death and resurrection then brought in an end to the dispensation or period of time known as law. I mean, I think just to bring this up, this shows us how really difficult this really is since something that could be really said for all of these different options on how to understand the word here. But I think the second option is the best. Christ is a fulfillment. And the reason I say that is because in understanding Christ is the, the fulfillment of the law, the end of the law is being the a fulfillment of it, it leads us to understand 
how Christ is the, the completion of the law. It, it, it explains the second two options there. So let's talk about how Christ was a fulfillment of the law for just a couple minutes. First, we must note that Jesus fulfilled the law in that he kept it perfectly. How was Jesus a fulfillment of the law? He was obedient to the law in every respect. Now, theologians at this point usually make a distinction. And the distinction is is important for us here to understand. And that is the distinction between Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. When we think of Jesus' passive obedience, what we are thinking of is his willing submission to the will of the Father to die for the sins of those who would place their faith and trust in him. Philippians chapter 2. Right? Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. His, his passive obedience, he submitted to the will of the Father. He came to live a perfect life, to die and suffer for our sins, even death on a cross. Jesus' active obedience refers to how Jesus kept the law of Moses in every respect. This is the, the moral law. That's what we usually think about, right? How he, but he also fulfilled all of the, the types and the shadows and the, the ceremonial law by being the reality in which everything in the Old Testament law pointed to. For instance, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There is a sense in which the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a type and shadow of Jesus. It all pointed to the perfect sacrifice that would come and and end the curse once and for all. Jesus, in his life, fulfilled prophecies. He lived them out to the letter. The point is that Jesus fulfilled or satisfied the demands of the law completely. And this is part of what it it means in in verse 4 here when we read that Christ was an end to the law. A second way in which Jesus became an end of the law is that he fulfilled the law on our behalf. We need to to grasp this. A lot of people just leave it at the fact that Jesus kept the law perfectly. And because of that, Jesus then is no more than a superb, superb moral example for us to follow and imitate. Jesus' life of obedience becomes something for us to strive for. But as we pointed out at the start of the message, we can never strive enough to please God by our own righteousness. The law points to the fact that we need a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. Our righteousness will never work. The only righteousness is the perfect righteousness of him who kept all points of the law perfectly. So here Jesus didn't just keep the law perfectly and fulfill every aspect of it. He did it for us. He did it for you and for me. So that those who are joined to him by faith depend not on their own merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law for them. In other words, are we saved by works? Absolutely. His, not our own. His righteousness by keeping the law was imputed to us. His righteous standing before God comes through law-keeping. That's central. His active obedience is central in our salvation. 
Just think of the hymn, It is well with my soul. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is what? Nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. So when we said that Jesus kept the law perfectly for us, we are saying that on the cross, our sin was transferred to him. My sin, not in part, but the whole of it is nailed to him. Jesus bore it. But on the other hand, his righteousness, his right standing before God, earned through law keeping, is given to us, is imputed to us. Our sin nailed to the cross, the robe of righteousness, of Christ's righteousness, is given to us. Think of it in terms of, of three words, guilt, grace, gratitude. The law highlights our guilt, points us to the grace of the gospel, and in that we are grateful. We, are gra- we have gratitude. The law highlights our guilt, points us to the gospel, and the marvelous grace of God and the product is, is gratitude, and that is how we live our lives, in gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And this leads us to a final point. Now we've been talking about Christ being an end of the law in terms of fulfillment, which is really the doctrine of justification. And since we see in verse four here from the vantage point, from that vantage point, now we recognize that the word end here also has another meaning. Charles Hodge's third point. And that point wouldn't make sense without what we've already said, but it is speaking of the ultimate goal. In other words, The ultimate goal of Christ saving us is that we are to be holy people. But we don't get the cart before the horse. The goal isn't that we are holy in order to please God and earn his approval or to be more holy than the Christian next to us. As true believers, we are all God's children. Holiness in the Christian life comes through gratitude of what Christ has done. Listen to the indicatives in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race. Not because of something you have done, but because of something He has done. And this was all about chapter 9, right? God takes a remnant from Israelites from the Gentiles, and he makes them into his people. These are his people, called and chosen. Why? Because of him who calls. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Those are indicatives. Those are gospel. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why do you do that? Why why do you proclaim the excellencies of him? Because of what he's done. Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
just briefly here, and then I'll be finished. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, cho- a, ro- a holy nation, God's possession, called out of darkness into his light, all of these gospel indicatives. And this is who you are in Christ, not based on anything that we have done, but based on what he has done. And then the product is, we proclaim his excellencies. What excellencies? You ever read this and thought about, what excellencies are we supposed to proclaim? What he has done. Not what you've done to merit anything. But we proclaim him because once we have not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. That's the excellencies that we are proclaiming. That's 1 Peter 2.10, by the way. And then verse 11 is the imperative. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because it isn't congruent with who you are in Christ Jesus. Our lives ought to point to the one who saved us. And that kind of life comes from one who is truly grateful, who understands and is continuing to understand that they have been saved from a life of of sin, not by their own merit, but because of him who calls. And they proclaim that, and they are grateful. And Christ then is this great Savior. Christ becomes everything. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Just think about that statement for a moment. No longer do you pursue a righteous standing before God by law-keeping. No matter where it's found, the Old Testament and the New Testament, no matter where it's found. In Christ is an end of the law for everyone who believes. Because your right standing before God does not come through your own merit, but through the merit of Jesus Christ. And if you would believe on him and trust in him, that when he lived his life, he lived it for you. That when he passively died on the cross, he did it for you, that he would bear that weight, that punishment for you, so that his righteousness would be given to you and that you would stand before God, not based on your own merit and your own goodness, but on his And that your sins then would be in turn forgiven and nailed to the cross. That his, the wrath of God fell on him and your sin was dealt with, but it wasn't dealt with by you. What a wonderful statement of gospel truth. If you would, just stand with me. We're going to close our time with a a word of prayer. I want you to know that we're going we're gonna to start something here soon, sometime soon. It's called Be Known. Um, and it, it isn't for everyone, but it's an opportunity for everyone. 
It's an opportunity for us to get to know one another in a little bit different way, but, it, but even more than that, it's an opportunity for us to, to be known. I mean, there's a, there's a few steps to this. It involves helping you tell your story, writing it out, and then ultimately sharing it. And it could be just sharing it with uh, another person in, in church or sharing it in front of the, the whole congregation or even recording it. But the option is open. And the reason that I bring this up here just at the, the end for a moment is that one of the, the products of this is it shows us how great a Savior Jesus Christ is. When we tell our stories, when we focus on certain experiences through life, through difficulty of various sorts, through personal struggles, the list goes on and on. It all points to Christ as being the, the greatest Savior. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.